speaking of school, I once heard the following phrase that has stuck with me ever since, which is that uh, in school you first get the lesson and then you get the test, whereas in life you get the test and then you get the lesson. In school, you get the lesson, then you get the test. In life, you get the test, then you get the lesson. And the life of faith is really a combination of both of those. Sometimes God teaches us, and then what we know and believe about him is put to the test. Sometimes God tests us to cement in us what we know and believe about him, or to reveal what we have yet to know and believe about him. And the latter can be a daunting prospect. But he doesn't test us to cause failure. As someone has said, Satan tempts us to destroy us, but God tests us to strengthen us. Deuteronomy 8.2 indicates that God tests us to know what was in our heart, whether we would keep his commandments or not. Now, in the providence of God, we are by far not the first to experience God's testing. In the Scriptures, God has given us a cheat sheet, if you will. Not only has He told us that the testing of our faith will come, there are no true pop quizzes in the Christian life, but He has also given us every reason to trust and obey when they do come, no matter the questions that are asked of us. And sometimes the tests are exceedingly difficult. You might be in the midst of one right now, There may be one just over the horizon, and we can expect them in the future. Some circumstance, some experience, when it may feel that God is asking you to trust and obey in an impossible scenario. How do we get through such a test? How do we even begin to prepare for such a test? Well, I hope and pray this morning that we will be provided with rich lessons to help us past any current or future tests. For we are about to read of God's ask of one man, an ask that if we didn't know up front it was a test would be scandalous, and even still is shocking to our sensibilities. Yet, Yet in this account of Abraham's life, God reveals the following. The obedience of faith that passes testing beyond measure is blessed beyond measure. Sometimes God stretches our faith to the absolute max. And He shows us that trust in action is profoundly rewarded. The obedience of faith that passes testing beyond measure is blessed beyond measure. I invite you to turn with me to see three lessons to learn in preparation for present or future tests by opening to Genesis 22 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one nearby. You can pick that one up. Turn to page 16, and you can read, or you can follow along with what we're about to read together. Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19, or page 16 of the blue Bibles. And if you are here and not a Christian and don't own a Bible, then consider that one yours. And we would delight for you to take it home and take it up and read it and see what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. So Genesis 22, let me pray before we read together. 
Lord, today we have been reminded that there is uh, significance to the date of the ways in which you have worked in and through your people. And as one said during the time or at the time of the Reformation, you were the one who did the work. Your word was opened, and through the power of your spirit, it took hold of people and brought transformation of lives and of the church. And so we pray that what happened then and what happened before and what has happened since would happen here now, that you would do your work by the power of your spirit as your word is opened here in this place and in many other places this morning. Lord, let our experience be that your word is like a hammer that breaks the rock and like a fire that consumes the dross, that we might be sanctified by your truth, for your word is truth. We pray also, Lord, for any who are here or who are hearing your word in other places this morning who aren't Christians, that you would open up their eyes and help them to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, the one that you sent into the world to be our Savior. This we ask in his name and all of God's people say, Amen. Just before we read, I want to point out a few features of the text worth highlighting to help our understanding and interpretation, which is a little out of order from how I normally do things, but uh, I think it's worthwhile. Firstly, Genesis 22 is the last time God speaks to Abraham. There's two times when he does in Genesis 22. The first speech in Genesis 22 is very, has similarities to the first time God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 12. And the second speech in Genesis 22 connects God's promises to Abraham that we've seen all along in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, and 18. What we're about to read together on the mountaintop is the climax of Abraham's life and faith. And each thread will be gathered together in a profound and rich tapestry that we really should marvel at. So firstly, it's the last time God speaks. Secondly, there is a noticeable repetition of the relationship between Abraham and Isaac, with the word son appearing more than ten times throughout. So listen for it as we read. Pay attention to it as we do. Thirdly, in relation to this, each movement of this gripping story is marked by the poignant phrase, so both of them went together. You're going to hear it in verse 6. You're going to hear it in verse 8. You're going to hear it in verse 19. And all of this just adds to the anguish and the tension. And fourthly, please note that we are purposefully given information that Abraham does not have. The unexpected and shocking request God gives to Abraham is alleviated from any moral compromise on God's part by how the passage begins. And I need, we need to keep that in mind. It's crucial. Nevertheless, in saying this, Abraham does not know what we, the reader, know, which will heighten the intensity of what we will now read. So take your Bibles, look to Genesis 22, and listen as I read the first 19 verses. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Between chapters in 21 and chapter 22, some time has passed. When God's test of Abraham begins in verse 1 with God calling him Abraham, to which Abraham responds with a phrase he uses twice more in the account, here I am. And what comes next in verse 2 is meant to be heard and read slowly. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, which we remember means laughter, whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering. In preparing a burnt offering, Abraham would have understood involved slitting the throat, dismemberment, and setting the flame. And who of us in our day could stomach watching this being done to an animal, let alone doing it ourselves, let alone doing it to our own child, but here God is talking about Abraham's dear boy, the child of promise, Isaac. And the way God asks indicates God's understanding of the magnitude of the ask. The Hebrew reads, please, 
8. As we've seen before, this is the third of only four times in all of Scripture where God speaks using that word, please. And it's now the third time God has spoken to Abraham this way. The first was Genesis 13, 14. Please lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. The second, Genesis 15, 5, where God brings Abraham outside and says, please look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And the third is here in Genesis 22, too. Please take your son. Victor Hamilton summarizes, in each of these passages, God asks somebody to do something that transcends human comprehension. Yeah, no kidding. In 22 verse 3, then, we begin to see the first lesson to learn to prepare us for future tests. Faith that passes testing beyond measure treasures God beyond measure. The only way to get through is to delight in God above all else. The obedience of faith that passes testing beyond measure treasures God beyond measure. Look at verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son, Isaac. His response is immediate, and the details, most of which are actually redundant, invite us to consider Abraham's silent thoughts. The two men, the donkey, they're left behind at the most pivotal moment in the story, yet we get every painstaking step that is taken so that we might journey with Abraham as we see him treasure God beyond measure. Along with his immediate response is his thorough preparation as we continue reading in verse 3 and following. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. He doesn't exactly know where he's going to go, and so he has to be ready when he gets there. He arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then he tells the young man, stay here. The obedience of Abraham's faith is immediate. The obedience of Abraham's faith prepares. The obedience of Abraham's faith is committed. He straps the wood to the back of his son, his own son, his only one, the one whom he loves, Isaac. In his own hands, he takes the fire and the knife for slaughtering the sacrifice. But why? Why does Abraham do this? Isaac was the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. Last week we heard the contagious laughter that resulted in his being born to an old man and an old barren woman. And over and over again, God indicated that it was through Isaac Abraham's offspring would be multiplied and become a great nation. And it is through Isaac that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And now God asks Abraham to slaughter his own son, offer him as a whole burnt offering, and Abraham's willing. Is he mad? Is this the kind of religion that some people consider to be the scourge of our planet? It wasn't my fault. God made me do it. God told me to do it. Perhaps you're listening to this as someone who's not a Christian, and you're beginning to wonder what is the fastest way out of here because this sounds absolutely mental. This is where we need to remember that God is testing Abraham. 
We're told that up front. The Bible tells us elsewhere that child sacrifice, which some of the surrounding nations practiced, was horrendous to God. So why then does God test in this manner and why then does Abraham comply? To show us that God is to be worshipped not for what He gives us, but for who He is. All of the eggs of Abraham's future were in the Isaac basket. God put them there. Ishmael has been sent away and though he will become a great nation because he is Abraham's son, he's living off in the wilderness, he's married to an Egyptian, he's not a member of the covenant family, and so only Isaac is left as the rightful heir. Only Isaac can fulfill all of God's promises that are said to come to fruition. And so when it comes down to the wire, God is revealing through this test, what does Abraham treasure more? The blessings of God or the God of the blessings? There's a song by beautiful eulogy called If that captures this so well. And it's been a little while since you got a dose of some holy hip-hop, at least in a sermon. So I'm just going to read to you the words of the song which are addressed to God. And you'll have to listen to it to get full justice because uh, I can send you the link afterwards. This is what it says. If in one unfortunate moment you took everything that I own, everything you've given from heaven above and everything that I've ever known, if you stripped away my ministry, my influence, my reputation, my health, my happiness, my friends, my pride, and my expectation, if you caused for me to suffer or to suffer for the cause of the cross, of the cost of my allegiance is prison and all my freedoms are lost, if you take the breath from my lungs and make an end of my life, if you take the most precious part of me and take my kids and my wife, it would crush me, it would break me, it would suffocate and cause heartache. I would taste the bitter dark providence, but you would still preserve my faith. What's concealed in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things. And I can't even imagine the kind of the sting that kind of pain Brings. I would never blame you for evil, even if you caused me pain. I came into this world with nothing, and when I die, it will be the same. I will praise your name in the giving and taking away. And here's what is the highlight. If I have you, I could lose everything and still consider it gain. That is what the obedience of faith reveals when passing testing beyond measure. Treasuring God beyond measure. Yes, God delights to give good gifts to His children, but the gifts are never to be valued more than the giver. And even if all the gifts were gone, we would still have Him, and He is beautiful. We don't often think of the Lord this way, but the Scriptures certainly present Him to us this way. And I wish we had the rest of our time this morning just to extol the beauties of God. Here are just a few highlights. Psalm 50, verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Isaiah 4, 2 tells us of the branch of the Lord that He shall be beautiful and glorious. Psalm 145, verse 3 
reads, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And then the psalm goes on to speak of the glorious splendor of God's majesty, His abundant goodness, His righteousness, His grace, His mercy, His patience, His steadfast love, His glory, His power, His kindness, and His holiness. God in all of His beauty is to be treasured above all. And when He is, nothing else will compare, nothing else will compete, which means that we would be willing to let go of everything because at the end of the day, we know we have Him. And He is rightly jealous for such affection. And He will test us to draw it out or expose its lack because he knows that he is the greatest treasure that we could have. And he is willing for us to have him. To have him. For his dwelling to be in our midst and for our dwelling to be in his midst that we would treasure him above everything. And that is what is drawn out here as God tests Abraham. Now, if some of us are still struggling with with Abraham's willingness to go through with this plan, hints of faith have already begun to emerge in verse 5, and they come bursting forth in verses 7 and 8. This brings us to a second lesson to learn to help us pass current and future tests. The obedience of faith that passes testing beyond measure trusts God's provision beyond measure. The only way to get through is to believe that God will always make good on His promises. The obedience of faith that passes testing beyond measure trusts God's provision beyond measure. In verse 5, I want us to pay careful attention to the grammar. And yes, I use the word grammar, which I know you're not supposed to do in a sermon because it risks boring those of you who are listening, but you're going to want to see this. Abraham says explicitly in verse 5, we will come again to you. He's speaking to the men, the servants, and he says, we, not I. So we're going up the mountain. We're going to worship. Abraham knows he's to sacrifice Isaac, and yet he says, we will come back. Lots of pondering has gone into what Abraham meant in saying this. Is he being deceptive in some way as to hide his true intentions from Isaac and the servants whom he asked to stay behind? I don't believe so, as there is nothing in but nothing but commendation for Abraham at the conclusion of this scene. Was he undecided in what course of action he would take in the end? Maybe he's thinking, ah, I might not go through with it, and that's why we will come back to you. But I don't believe that's the answer either, given how immediate and thorough his response and preparation was. So what then is the answer? I think we have it given to us later in the Scriptures. In Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. tells us this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It says this he considered that God was able even to raise him back from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
Abraham believed the promises. And though he was tested beyond measure in God's ask, he trusted God's provision beyond measure that even if he killed his own son, that the eternal God who gave him Isaac in the first place could raise him from the dead if that's what it took to fulfill his promises. We pay God the highest honor, to quote one of the reformers, Calvin, when in affairs of perplexity, when in all of our wisdom there is no possible way forward that we can see, when we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to God's providence. The obedience of faith that passes testing beyond measure obediently trust that God will provide a way to fulfill His promises even when it seems to us that there is none. And this all happened, by the way, in the context of the third day, as verse 4 indicates. And doesn't that just sound a wee bit familiar? That Abraham would figuratively receive Isaac back from the dead on the third day? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Ding, 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 ding. Now the faith in verse 5 that was a little harder to see is a whole lot easier to see in verses 7 to 8, which comes in the only exchange between Abraham and Isaac. The building silence between father and son is broken as the elephant in the room gets bigger the closer they get to the place of the sacrifice. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? The tenderness of this is agonizing. My father, my son. Dads, as an aside, I hope you show such affection to your sons if God has given them to you as we are let in on here. I know that's not the point, but as a pastoral aside, could I just encourage you to tell your sons that you love them? Hold their hands when they are little. Hug them and kiss them and tell them that you love them. Tell them that you're proud of them. Cultivate that affection so that they know that they can reciprocate that to you. As a grown son, I know you never get too old for affection from your dad. Maybe the holding hands part, that would get a little weird at this stage of life, but you can sign me up for the rest. Isaac was likely a teenager by this point. So sons, don't roll your eyes and let your dad's affection bounce off as though it means little to you. We know that it doesn't. The poignancy of the scene is all the greater because of the affection we witness, as is the obedience of Abraham's faith. Look at the answer Isaac's question generates in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So both of them went together. Abraham is trusting God's provision, which is the turning point of the story. And Isaac trusts dad who's trusting God. God will see to it, Abraham believes, to provide the missing, crucial component of their meeting God on the mountain to worship. 
as all of the previous promises God has made to Abraham are rolling around in his mind, maybe along with all of the past failures of Abraham as he has not, when he has not listened or trusted God, as well as this most recent request, Abraham has no idea how this all is going to add up. He simply trusts that God will see to it. It's not a blind faith. It's not a moronic faith. It's informed by everything God has said and done previously, which is projected into the immediate situation as well as projected into the future. And that is how we pass current and future testing. We treasure God beyond measure, and we trust God beyond measure. And when we do, we will eventually come to a place where we experience God's blessing beyond measure. In verses 9 to 18, we begin to see how God's provision manifests as the obedience of faith that passes testing beyond measure is indeed blessed beyond measure. Verses 9 and 10 are in slow motion. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham's faith does not waver. And Isaac, old enough to carry the wood all the way up the mountain, would have been big enough and strong enough to fend off his aged father, but his trust is implicit. And now comes the moment of truth in verse 10, and we can see it in our minds, his old, gnarled gnarled hand, as Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Several famous artists have painted the gripping scene. Isaac bound, neck uh, exposed, knife poised. And seemingly at the last possible moment, indicated by the urgency of his name being called twice, we read in verse 11, Abraham, Abraham. He says again, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The test has revealed the true nature of Abraham's previously ambling faith in this climactic moment on the mountaintop, where his treasuring of God beyond measure is proved in his being tested beyond measure. Abraham's willingness to give up Isaac and therefore everything indicates that his awe, his reverence, his honor is directed towards God and God alone. The obedience of his faith indicates that he truly fears God. And the obedience of his faith is blessed beyond measure, first, in the provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. We see that in verses 13 and 14. The obedience of faith is blessed beyond measure in the provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. Here in the account, we're invited to look through Abraham's eyes where he lifts them up again and looks, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And whether it was there the whole time and they were just so intensely focused on the moment and didn't notice, or it arrived in that moment, we don't know. But we read here that in verse 13, Abraham went and he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
and now all of the tension just vanishes. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What was anticipated in verse 8 is now realized here. Abraham's faith was well placed as faith in God always is, especially when we trust in the substitutionary sacrifice this passage points us to. We're going to eat and drink in a few moments together, and so you can consider this, the reflections to prepare us for the table. I won't say much later because of what can be said from here on out. What we hear in this chapter echoes down through the pages of Scripture, does it not? The promised child carries wood on his back and climbs a mount to be a sacrifice. The quiet compliance of Isaac rings of the obedience of God's Son as Isaiah writes. He he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We hear the echo of this scene in other places as well. Abraham's son that he was willing to offer was spared, but God was willing to offer his son and he was not spared. Paul writes in Romans 8:32, God did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all. In John 3:16, we hear another echo, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just as Isaac lived because God provided the ram, the ram, we too can live though we have broken God's law. And if you are not a Christian listening to this this morning, you stand at this moment condemned because you are guilty of breaking the law of God. And I would urge you to even open up the Ten Commandments and begin to read and see the ways in which you have violated the Word of God. But God provided the substitute to pay the debt that we owe. And so Jesus is proclaimed as what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of this is in fulfillment of what heaven says next in verses 15 to 18 in response to the obedience of Abraham's faith. He is blessed beyond measure in the provision of a substitute. The obedience of faith that passes testing beyond measure is also blessed beyond measure in the promise of a future. There's a substitutionary sacrifice. There is a promise of a future. Look at verses 15 and following. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn declares the Lord. Because you have done this and not have withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is one of the richest texts in all of the Old Testament 
because of how foundational it is, and we only have but a few moments to begin to unearth some of its treasure. First of all, it has been noted that this is the first and only divine oath in the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. As all of the threads of all of the promises of covenant blessings to Abraham are gathered here in Genesis 22, they are strengthened by God swearing by himself to keep them. Additionally, this wording is accompanied by the formal language of prophetic announcement, translated in verse 16 as declares the Lord. Some of you might have grown up in church long enough to remember hearing this as thus saith the Lord. All that has been promised before and reiterated here is doubly strengthened by both of those features. And if that wasn't enough, there's a triple strengthening of the provision of this blessed future when God says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. Underline that. Every once in a while, I sort of dig into or dabble into the world of cryptography, which is maybe a little bit weird, but it has a fascinating history through human advancement. And we've gotten to the level of now, uh, digitally, of having encryption that uses 128-bit keys. Now, if that doesn't mean much to you, just imagine a key in your pocket that is long enough to have 128 different notches to unlock your front door. And we use that in a digital world. It is said that even if you build a worldwide network of supercomputers designed just for the purpose of trying combinations as fast as possible, it would take more than 100 billion years on average to stumble on the right combination for one key. And if that key was doubled to 256, it would be 340 billion, 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 billion times harder. In other words, it can't be cracked. That is the kind of security level we are talking when we read the promises of God as they are stated here in Genesis 22. They cannot be cracked. The world, the flesh, the devil don't have that kind of power or subterfuge to undo the promised blessings of this future. Some of the language in these verses we've heard before, so I won't repeat that now, but some of it is strikingly new. There's a combination of offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore in verse 17. We've never seen those together before. Abraham is told not just that there would be the promise of land for his offspring, but at the end of verse 17, his offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. You go back to Lot for a minute, sitting in the gates of the wicked city of Sodom, And here we're told, no, Abraham's descendants will take over the gates of his enemies such that they will be wicked no longer. And then in verse 18, there's a significant expansion from what we heard when God first spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. In Genesis 12.3, we're told in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. But here now, it is speaking of all of the nations of the earth. And this cannot be undone because God swears by himself that it will be so. But there's also a thorny issue to sort out here. Twice we are told that this blessing would come because of Abraham's obedience. 
Verse 16, because you have done this. Verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice. What's the deal? At some points along the way in Genesis, it has sounded as though the covenant with Abraham is a unilateral covenant. It's a one-way deal, and God and God alone will uphold it. Paul also tells us that Abraham was not justified by works. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it's by faith. Yet at other points along the way, it sounds as though this covenant with Abraham has been a bilateral, a two-way covenant that is dependent upon Abraham keeping up his end of the bargain. And James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. What are we to make of this? If blessing beyond measure is dependent upon the obedience of our faith, passing testing beyond measure, we are in a great deal of trouble, are we not? My faith has failed. And I would wager a pretty good amount that yours has also. We certainly know Abraham's has. And so, is this blessing through faith, or is it through obedience? How is it that we are able to come to stand before God without fear of judgment, which is the very question that fired the man and woman in the Reformation that we historically mark on this very day? And we really need to figure this out all the way back here, because the rest of the Bible unfolds what we read in Genesis. So is this a one-way covenant between God and Abraham, or is this a two-way covenant between God and Abraham? I've been so helped through this whole series so far by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam's book, Kingdom Through Covenant. They write, there is only one covenant, and one cannot simplistically say that this covenant is unilateral. That is one way. Genesis 22 will not allow us to to say that. They write as follows. Instead, the covenants exhibit a blend of unconditional and conditional elements. In terms of unconditional, it is only because of God as the covenant-making and keeping Lord that the promises of the covenants are unilaterally guaranteed. God's commitment first to himself, his creation, and his image-bearers is what grounds our confidence that the covenant relationship will not fail. Yet, in terms of conditional, God demands an obedient, devoted covenant partner. In Abraham, in the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham is presented to us as a new Adam who is to serve as that obedient son, that devoted covenant partner. But as has already been said, there's a major problem because Abraham has not been an obedient, devoted covenant partner. We've seen his failures. Yes, he is rewarded here for his obedience, but this tension exists, and the tension is real, and it remains throughout all of the covenants. For this covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, mediated through Moses, and we see that Israel, sometimes she obeys, and sometimes she most definitely does not. And then you have a covenant relationship with 
David and David's household. And sometimes we see David, yes, he is a man after God's own heart. And sometimes he is most definitely not. And we are no different, are we? Sometimes we are obedient. And sometimes we are most definitely not. So who then will serve? as the covenant partner, as the obedient and devoted Son through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It can only be one. It can only be the Son of God, Jesus, His only Son, whom He loves and whom He is well-pleased and who was not spared, but died as the substitute in the place of covenant breakers, having kept the whole law of God himself, so that in him all the nations of the earth could be blessed. In this passage we read that God will multiply Abraham's offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and that makes us think of many, and it should. But there's also a good case to be made for the two later uses of offspring as being singular, as being one individual. One individual will possess the gate of his enemies. One of Abraham's offspring will bless all of the nations of the earth. It is Christ's obedience that is rewarded. And his obedience is what is imputed to our account by faith alone as a gift of God's grace alone, revealed in God's Word alone to the glory of God alone. On the mountaintop where the Lord provided, this is what is ultimately revealed in this gripping episode with Abraham and Isaac. Yes, there are lessons to help us in the tests that God will send our way. But if this does not drive us to look to the one and the only one who was faithful and through whom we can bless, we have missed what Genesis 22 teaches us. And surely, the God in transvision that Abraham ascended the mountain with was even more God in trans when together with Isaac they arose and went together to Beersheba in verse 19. Surely, these future prospects filled Abraham's heart and mind to the point where they would burst. As Jesus said to the Jews in John 8:56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. On the mountaintop with Isaac, he saw that. Sure, it was in as though a shadow, but it was enough to delight him. And as we come around the table of the Lord, looking back to the Mount of Crucifixion, where we see the substance of what Abraham saw, where we see in the light what Abraham saw in the shadow, I trust that our hearts and minds are fit to burst as well. Full of all that we need to pass any current and future tests as those who have been blessed already beyond measure and who in the coming ages 
when God shows to us the indescribable richness of his kindness, we will be blessed beyond measure. And that is every reason for us to worship Christ in song as we will be led to do again.